Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. The connection between you and your therapist matters. That's why Alma focuses on helping you find the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search by what you want to focus on, like anxiety, relationships, or big life transitions. You can also specify preferences around gender, race, faith, and more to help you find someone who's more likely to understand where you're coming from. Alma also makes it easy for therapists to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of providers in their directory accept insurance for sessions, so you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash not just anyone to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash not just anyone. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode, you'll hear Javier Murillo. I thought, oh fuck, does he have a weird Latin thing? And then I thought, really? You're going to judge him? Really? <laughs> that and more. But before that, this guy. Hello, friends. You know, some small businesses think that leasing a postage meter is how businesses get postage for their letters and packages. But they don't realize there's a better way. Stamps.com. Unlike a postage meter, Stamps.com has no hidden fees, no long-term contracts, and no extra hardware. At Stamps.com, you can save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Plus, with Stamps.com, you can use your existing address books or send tracking information to recipients with the click of a button. We use Stamps.com and we love it. Now, why don't you get off your lily white ass and use my promo code, which is R-I-S-K. It's a no-risk trial. Plus, you get a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale, up to $55 free postage. Don't wait! Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on that microphone at the top of the homepage and type in R-I-S-K once again. That's Stamps.com! Enter risk. Uh, <clears throat> now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is sven vath 
behind me now. I've always said there's no vath like Svenvath. So of all the vaths, we thought we'd Svenvath it on this one. This episode of Rask is live from Minneapolis, folks. This was our second time visiting the city by the thing. The thing is what I call St. Paul. And we were hosted by the wonderful Brave New Workshop, a uh, little institution they have there where they do all sorts of improv training and shows of all sorts. I myself did a little storytelling workshop right there at Brave New Workshop, and indeed it was both brave and new. And it was the usual roller coaster ride, an emotional roller coaster ride. We're going to feature three of the stories that we did there in Minneapolis. One, there was a fourth story, but we've already featured it on the podcast. Mariah Myers was on a couple weeks ago, and we've already gotten so many beautiful comments about it from fans. We're going to start with the never not wonderful Amy Salloway. Amy's been on the show two times before, and she really is just, we love her. She's always so much fun to listen to. You can find her at amysalloway.com, and here she is now with a story we call Sister Act. for sure why my mother didn't like me, but I spent a lot of my childhood trying to figure it out. So even from the age of like two and three, I could see examples of what mother-child relationships were supposed to look like, you know? Like I had seen the bond between Bambi's mother and Bambi, and Dumbo's mother and Dumbo, and, and I had read the book, Are You My Mother, where the little baby bird falls out of the nest and it talks to the dog and the fire hydrant and the cement mixer, and then it finds its mom again. And none of those examples were anything like the crying, screaming, fighting relationship that I had with my mother, where we would have these fights that started usually with some vaguely tangible seed, like, Amy, why are you crumpling up all these sheets of paper? Amy, you can draw on the back. Use the back. But would quickly escalate into psychological Warfare. What is wrong with you? This behavior is not normal. And it kind of called into question the entire concept of unconditional love. <laughs> so by the time I was four, I had developed a dominant theory, which was that I was not ever supposed to be my mother's child. I was a distribution error. So, yeah, so when God or God's administrative assistant was, like, dropping down zygotes into pregnancy desirous women all over the world, my mother's matching zygote was accidentally given to someone else. 
and with it all the maternal love and comfort and affection that she and that baby would have felt. And instead, she was implanted with me, basically a foreign object with which she had no connection. I might as well have been a seahorse or a ham sandwich. And so that logical resentment was why she exploded at me so much and yelled so much and why I yelled back and why then no matter how hard I tried to change and reconfigure myself, I couldn't turn myself into the daughter she really would have wanted. When I was six, I was eating Cheerios at the kitchen table, and my mother came in in her pink nightgown and told me that she was pregnant. The doctor says it's very, very dangerous for me to have this baby because I'm so old. I'm 31. I could die. So, I mean, I started, of course, like crying and clutching at her and saying, Mommy, please, then don't have this baby. I don't want you to die. And she slapped my hands away and told me that it was not my decision to make. True. And that I could increase her chances of survival by being better behaved for her, and my stepfather said, and by helping out more around the house. But already... I was just shaken. Why would my mother risk death for a baby that didn't even exist yet? Like, hello, I existed. Hello, Amy, right here, in progress. I knew that I was not perfect by any means, but wasn't I enough to stay alive for? I immediately preemptively loathed this baby that was so fucking amazing it was worth possible death. I postemptively loathed the baby also. Um, <laughs> it was it was a girl, my half sister Abby, and I will tell you it was strenuous hating her because she was irrationally lovable. She was beautiful in a way that I will never be, with like shiny, shiny brown hair and these huge brown anime eyes. And she had this generosity of spirit that is antithetical to toddlers. Everyone, yes, everyone noticed it. So like we would go visit my grandparents in Florida and the elderly lap swimmers at the pool would take her little hands, her little sausage arms in there and say, oy, such a Shana Madel this one is, inside and out, new. And my mother would beam like a flashlight, and then all of their heads would swivel in unison to look at me, glued with sweat to the patio chair, one hand like trying to shove my body back into my bathing suit that it was escaping from, and the other hand shoving Pepperidge Farm pirouette cookies into my mouth. And my mother would say, that one, oi gewalt. I had a lot of methods, though, for trying to hate my sister. Like, when my parents made me babysit for her, I would always make us play with her little Fisher-Price doctor kit, and I would diagnose her with terminal cancer every time (laughs) and give her two weeks to live. (laughs) 
Or I would have us play Legos, and I would grab a handful and spell out across the carpet, I hate you, Abby. I'm not proud. <laughs> but, but every time, she would throw her arms around my neck and hug me and say in this way she had, where to this day, everything she utters sounds like it's out of little women. Oh, Amy, you mustn't hate me. I don't hate you. I love you. And I would pry her off of me and seethe, don't love me. Oh, but I do. <laughs> It was horrific. And it gets worse. Okay, the worst part is, I know, these are song lyrics, everything I could do, Abby could do better. Every talent I had, Abby had more of. Like, you would think that two siblings who are not even completely related would be genetically programmed to have different interests. Like, one likes baseball, and the other likes Croatian leather tooling. I don't know. But no. No. All I had wanted from the time I emerged from the womb was to be in theater, was to be an actor, singer, dancer. And my vision was that there was going to come a day when I was roller skating on our Milwaukee driveway singing, we're going to zoom, 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 zoom. We're going to zoom, 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 zoom. And oh my gosh, a car would drive by containing a talent agent. And he would catapult me onto Zoom because there was a cast member leaving right at that moment. And then that would lead to a role in a Broadway musical. You're nodding. Yes, same dream. I think it was archetypal for a lot of us. And then from there, maybe like a starring role in a Disney movie. And from there, who knows what. But no, it was Abby who stopped traffic every time we were in the grocery store or the mall with people cooing and screaming and thrusting business cards and my mother with the scribbled names of talent managers and modeling agencies because Milwaukee is such a hotbed of international fashion. <laughs> right. Yes. All those cheeseheads. Um, and by the time by the time my sister was six, she had been in a baby shampoo commercial, an ad for an ear infection remedy. She was one of those kids that you see pointing to something very exciting up in the sky in the Sears back to school catalog. And every time she belted out, it's a hard knock life for us with the Sunshine Kids touring international children's performance company, I knew how irrelevant I had become, especially in my mother's eyes. Actually, beyond irrelevant, I was an aberration. My mom started asking me to please don't sing in the house because it took up airspace from Abby's, you know, voice lessons and rehearsals for Annie Get Your Gun. And also my sister was getting headshots like every five minutes and I was always in the car going to them and, and I would say, look, you know what? You don't even have to make a special trip. I am right here. Can I please get headshots too? You know what? I bet you could even work out a two-for-one deal appealing to my mother's love of a bargain. <laughs> but 
she would say, no, no, if you want headshots, you pay for them yourself. That way they'll be more meaningful. So around this time, our family got a cleaning lady named Linda. So I was about 15 by now, and I was very opposed to the fact that we were getting a cleaning lady because I had just hit my like larval women's rights phase. And I yelled at my mom. I said, we, we are Jewish. Our ancestors were slaves over and over throughout the centuries, and now you want to enslave someone else? My mother told me that um, if I really wanted to free Linda from her shackles, perhaps I could clean our house every Saturday. And I decided that Linda didn't actually seem all that oppressed. <laughs> um, <laughs> Linda, Linda was fascinating. She had a story that I got to hear because she told it to my mom while she cleaned on Saturdays. And Saturdays was my scheduled day for um, moping and seething around the house. So I eavesdropped. So Linda had a boyfriend who was a radical activist. I don't know what he was radically active about, but he had gotten arrested by the cops and was in prison. And Linda said it was totally unfair and that someday she was going to break him out and they were going to ditch all their worldly possessions and get on his motorcycle and ride across the border to Mexico and live incognito. So that night, up in my room, I got out my world atlas and flipped to the Mexico page to see where Cognito was. <laughs> I couldn't find it, but Linda wore a bandana, so I believed her. And then she told my mother that she was psychic. She, Linda, was psychic, not my mom. So. She was dusting at the time. I remember she was dusting objects on the, the dining room side table, lifting them up and putting them back down. And she told my mom that she got feelings from people as soon as she met them, and then even more so when she handled their possessions. The energy of theirs stored in a soap dish or a dirty sock. And she could tell where they had been and where they were going. Dust, dust, dust. Dust, dust, dust. So, sidebar, you may be skeptical. You may be thinking to yourself, if Linda was so psychic, why did she not see that her boyfriend was going to be thrown in prison? Why didn't she perhaps take some action to circumvent that fate? These are excellent questions. So, one day... <laughs> Linda was dusting a photo of Abby. It was the one that was taken from her Jiffy Pop shoot where she's like exploding jubilantly through a gigantic curtain of popcorn. And I was sitting in the family room which sort of segues into the living room. And I heard Linda say to my mother, this is your daughter Abby, isn't it? And my mother said, yes, yes, that's Abby. And Linda looked down at the photo and looked at my mother and said, she was Anne Frank in a past life. <laughs> my mother says, what? And Linda says, your daughter, Abby, 
She's the reincarnation of Anne Frank. <laughs> Thank you, you guys. Um, and, and my mother has a conniption. Oh my God, oh my God, Linda, Linda, this explains so much. It explains everything. The resemblance and the brown hair and the brown eyes and the, and Linda, she keeps a journal. And so, <laughs> I just, I wanna say here that this is a woman who has believed in a psychic art or anything extrasensory in her entire life. This is a woman who lives with such tangibility that when I was nine years old, she did not believe I had broken my wrist because she couldn't see it. It's a wrist. It looks fine. It's a wrist. It's fine. And now <laughs> she is like flailing in this dance of I don't even know what through the living room, family room, living room, family room, kitchen, um, sc like screaming sentence fragments. I knew it. Uh, it fits. Oh my. Goy gewalt nachis. Linda, did you know we're Jewish? <laughs> yes, Linda says. Yes, I had an idea of that. <laughs> and then my mother stops flailing and puts one hand on her hip and says, so, what about Amy? And I just think, no, oh my God, no, do not wrap me up in this. I, I wanna like catapult myself over to where they are and barricade the knickknacks so that this cannot go on any farther. But I'm not even supposed to be overhearing, no one even knows that I'm there. So I have to just sit there frozen. Linda goes over to the table and picks up this clay jar that I had made in art class in our pottery unit. It's a girl's head and her hair and ponytail are the lid, so you grasp the ponytail. Did you make one too? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And it could be like a match set. And, and you lift the lid off, put it back on. So Linda hold. I was very proud of it, by the way. Linda holds the jar. She takes the lid off, puts it back on, takes it off, puts it on. I want to shout at her, leave my head alone. But I can't. And she says to my mother, Amy wants to be an actress, doesn't she? Yes, says my mom. Yes, she does, just like her sister. Linda says, Amy's not the reincarnation of anyone, but I can tell you that she's never going to succeed in theater. And in fact, she's never going to feel fulfilled or happy until she comes to terms with the career that she is supposed to have as an emergency room nurse. <laughs> emergency room nurse. <laughs> Thus commences an escalation in the baseline level of crazy in my family. And I just want to say here that like this happened a long time ago. Like I am old. This is this is distant past. So I will admit that like my emotional memory of this is more powerful than the actual, you know, like chronological memory and I'm not 
utterly positive that this is all completely correct, and I'm also not positive, and will never know if my mother truly believed that my sister was the reincarnation of Anne Frank, or if it was just this very exciting roller coaster to be on. I mean, and I haven't explored it in therapy because I have more emergent things to deal with. But <laughs> I, but I just, I will say that at that point. My sister Abby was taken to auditions for every production of the Diary of Anne Frank in the tri-state area. She was interviewed for the community paper. She rode on the head 4th of July float. When her little friends came over, they would go up to her room and play Anne Frank in the annex. You be the Nazi. I was the Nazi last time. I wanted to say, I'll be the Nazi. No, that's terrible. Pretend I did not say that. Terrible, terrible. Or sometimes they would all just sit on her bed in a circle and, and look at her adoringly, and she would read chapters, excerpts to them from the diary of her. And, <laughs> and they would say, Abby, do you remember writing that? Do you remember writing that people are truly good at heart? And she would say, yeah, I think I do. And they would hug and cry and hug and cry. And sometimes she would sign autographs. <laughs> I came home from school one day. And my mother had left a stack of pamphlets for nursing programs on my bed. And I grabbed them and took them to her and shook them like this sheaf of whatever, malice going, how, what, why are you doing this to me? And my mother just looked at me and said, excuse me for wanting you to feel fulfilled and happy. I'm sorry I wanted you to be happy. And I thought about Linda as I was lying in bed trying to fall asleep. Like, what was her deal? Like, if she, if she got readings from the objects that people owned, why wasn't the first thing that she felt how dysfunctional our family was? Why didn't she pick up anything we had sitting around the house, the blender, and say, oh, I should use my powers for good, not evil. <laughs> I dreamed about faded bedsheets tied together knot by knot into a rope cascading out from a prison window between the bars down the cement wall and off farther, farther, farther into the distance until it hit the horizon and I couldn't see it. And I dreamt sometimes about my sister, my mom's perfect missing zygote. So one Saturday, Linda didn't show up to clean, and my mom called the agency that she was from, and I heard her end of the conversation, oh, 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 I see, thank you, and she hung up the phone, and Linda had done it. She had broken her boyfriend out of prison. They had skipped town, disappeared, and no one knew where they were. And something about that just shifted something in my head imperceptibly. So Anne Frank, at least for a while, escaped the Nazis into an attic and ostensibly 
escaped the time-space continuum into my 20th century sister. My mother escaped all the problems of our family into this amazing story. Linda's boyfriend escaped prison. Linda escaped the drudgery of her job with the 409 and the lemon pledge and the pine saw. And she didn't owe anyone anything. She just went. She was no one's slave. And I was miserable as hell. But I was not going to live in this house of pain forever. Someday, if I could just hang on, I would get my tied-together bedsheets floating out that window to take me somewhere else. I would get my hard-won reincarnation. And who knows who I'd be then. Thank you. Here's a foreign song I learned in Utah. Ha. Va. Ha va. Na. Ha va na. Gi. Ha va na gi. Lo. Havana Gila Orlai When you grow up Puerto Rican and gay, it's easy to develop a love-hate relationship to West Side Story. It's a little bit racist, but it's a musical. The rules, the rules of my love-hate relationship basically go like this. While I can tell you all about how much I love Rita Moreno, if you sing the lyrics of that song America to me, I'll break your fucking kneecaps. Oh, it's happened, not the kneecaps, but the singing. The singing happened an inordinate number of times when I was in my 20s that um, if I went out to a bar and a white guy hit on me, the conversation would go something like this. Uh, what's your name? Javier. Is that Spanish? Uh, yeah, yes, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican. <clears throat> I love Latin men. Are you uncut? Do you like to live in America? <laughs> Charmed. <laughs> it hasn't happened in a long time. Like I'm a lot older and the boys have moved on to other musicals, I don't know, but... Um, <laughs> It used to drive me crazy the things that people felt comfortable saying to me, like to my face. Part of it uh, was that I just really could never relate to the idea of a cultural or racial sexual fetish. Um, in fact, I rejected the concept. And that, I think, was largely from just the way I grew up. Like, I grew up mostly on, on the island in Puerto Rico, but on a U.S. Army base. My father was in the Army, and actually, until the age of seven, we lived all over the world. But from seven until I left for college, we lived on the island. But my entire education was, uh, happened in uh, Department of Defense schools, I've always spoken both English and Spanish. Like, I don't remember a time when I knew one and learned the other. And I always felt I have one foot firmly in the island's culture and another in U.S. mainstream culture. So... 
the advantages I learned really at a very young age. And I guess I'd describe it as like whatever group I was in, I always felt and, and still often do like on the outside looking in. I know that can sound weird, like that can sound lonely, but it, it actually felt very empowering to me. Like one of my formative memories of childhood experiences happened when my kindergarten teacher called my mother in for a parent-teacher conference to let her know that her son was willful and um, disobedient, and worse yet, did not know how to pronounce his own name. And mommy was alarmed until the teacher said, like, I call him, I say, Javier, come here, Javier, listen to me, and he just ignores me. Oh, mommy and I laughed all the way home, and I learned a very important lesson that day. Adults are stupid. <laughs> Particularly white ones. And, um, but, that experience for me, like, created this sense of, like, you know, like, whenever I was at a group of people who only spoke one language or only knew one culture, like, I just felt like I knew more than you. Like, the, the sort of the rest of that school year, whenever that teacher would, like, yell at me or I'd get in trouble, like, I just sort of, you know, sit there. Like, I was thinking, like, well, that's fine. We already established that you are dumb. <laughs> it was the beginning of a lifelong inner monologue where I'm a badass. So, of course, there are challenges to growing up the way that I did. And I experienced those, especially when I moved to the U.S., when I came to the U.S. for, for college, when sometimes I would feel or would be made to feel that living between cultures and languages really meant that there was nothing that I authentically was, that there was no identity that was authentically mine. And that would sometimes make me sad, but often I'd react very aggressively when I was challenged in any way on a, a vacation once home to Puerto Rico when I was in college, I was sitting next to a U.S. businessman and we started chatting and he asked me why I was going to the island and I said, because I'm, I'm from there, I'm Puerto Rican. And he said, oh, funny, you don't look Puerto Rican. I was like, what the fuck? Like, why the fuck not? <laughs> I don't look like Nardo? Like, I don't look like I'd kill your brother? Like, because that fucker was Greek, I said to him in my head. Like, very angry, like defensive, but with good reason, many times with very good reason. Like in graduate school at the University of Michigan, I uh, once had a, a brief fling with uh, the guy who was about my age, about 20-something at the time. He was working on a PhD in French literature. He was uh, what in today's gay parlance we would call an otter. But back then, skinny hairy boys had not yet been assigned a gay spirit animal. <laughs> So, so Otter Boy and I, we were um, one afternoon, like a Saturday afternoon, like rolling around in his futon, post-Saxon, and he shares with me that just a little earlier when we'd been fooling around, when I was on my knees before him, that when he was looking down at me, when he was fantasizing that he was a French colonial bureaucrat and I was his Moroccan houseboy. I was like, what the fuck is that? That is some non-consensual fantasizing, motherfucker. I said to him in my head. Like, what the fuck? So these experiences of being sung at in a bar and being roped in non-consensually to like a racist colonial fantasy, like just hardened my resolve to take someone and reduce them to that thing that makes them exotic to you that's just wrong. And for me, it was, it was very black and white um, as far as I was concerned. 
And it was easy for me to be black and white about it because I myself just never had any attraction to anything exotic or that different. And that was true until still in Michigan and for reasons that I can't recall, I developed this obsession with country music. (laughs) And I don't mean just the classic like Patsy Cline and Hank Williams or the kind of alt country that liberal academics will listen to. Oh no, I was into FM radio, 10 gallon cowboy hat, big hair country music. I love it. In what other genre of music can you, for example, in the space of one song experience, say, the story of a girl born poor outside New Orleans to a mama who loves her and has big dreams for her, but sells her into prostitution because mama's dying. Then when mama dies, the welfare people come and take baby brother away, and that's when the girl's like, oh, that's why mama bought me that red dancing dress. So she becomes a hooker, but a high-class hooker who entertains kings and congressmen and makes a lot of money. So years later, she's able to make mama's dream come true and move clear across town to the fancy part of town, which makes perfect sense because this girl, she might have been born just plain white trash, but fancy was my name. <laughs> that is Reba McIntyre, and it is still the greatest story ever told. You should have Reba on the podcast. So along with my fascination with country music, I developed this thing for uh, cowboys. Just something about the hat, the boots, the tight, tight jeans, the crazy ass line dancing that in any other context would be totally gay. Mm. Mm, Love it. Of course, you know, living in Michigan, I didn't have much opportunity to play out any rodeo fantasies until I got an invitation to an academic conference in Austin, Texas. And I was like, Texas, yes, I'm there. So I go, but as soon as I give my paper, I ditch the academics and go out on the town because I was on a mission. I was gonna find myself a cowboy. Now, unfortunately for me, Austin is like the only city in Texas that is not swimming in 10 gallon cowboy hats and boots. And I got lost and couldn't find the proper country and western bar. So I ended up at just a regular run-of-the-mill gay bar, the kind that looks the same no matter what city you're in, with like identical-looking boys with buff bodies dancing with each other with shirts off, water bottle, glossy eyes. <laughs> I was getting bummed. I was about to give up when all of a sudden, there he was. There was only one in the whole damn bar, but he was the real thing. The hat, the boots, western shirt, the tight, tight jeans. And he was looking at me. So we started talking. I don't remember what we talked about. All I know is that when he said, let's go, I said, giddy up. (laughs) So we go out to find his car, which is not his car. His pickup truck. Score. So as I'm getting into the passenger seat, Cowboy starts to put in a cassette. This was a long time ago. Starts to put in a cassette, and he looks at me and says, swear to God, I hope you don't mind a little Reba McIntyre. Look at the cowboy, and you say, cowboy, you're in luck. You just picked yourself up the Puerto Rican country music fan. Cowboy looks at me and says, I was wondering when you were gonna tell me what you were. Like, okay, weird. 
I thought, oh, fuck, does he have a weird Latin thing? And then I thought, really? You're going to judge him? Really? <laughs> Fine, cowboy. I'll see you, your Latin fetish, and raise you those cowboy boots. <laughs> so we go back to his place and start to get comfortable and buttoning and unbuckling. He sits down on the bed and sets his Stetson hat on one side and pats the other for me to sit down, which I, I do. I look down at his Tony Llama boots and I cannot believe my luck until I lean in and what comes out of his mouth is, kiss me, Michigan. Wait, what? Like Michigan, like I lived there, but that's not my identity. Wait, what? Like I had just made my peace with the fact that this was going to be an equal exchange of slightly inappropriate sexual attractions. And then he goes and turns the table on, on me because it was not just once. Oh no, the verbs changed, but the cries of Michigan kept getting louder and louder and louder. I was like looking around the room, like are there license plates on the wall? Like, is he collecting states as he brings boys home? Like, like at one point I like roll over and squash his Tetson hat. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's like, Michigan, he finishes, we finish awkwardly. Now, you may be wondering, you know, how after this experience, like, I felt and feel about cultural and racial sexual fetishes. Um, and if you're not wondering, I know there's at least one person here who is, because anyone who's listened to the podcast know that Kevin has a thing <laughs> for Asian man boys. And, and so, Kevin, let me answer the question that I know is in your head. Like, am I judging you? <laughs> so, the younger me the one who wanted to cut a businessman in an airplane, he's definitely judging you. And the boys who go back to your lair with you. <laughs> but me today, I actually landed in a pretty simple place. Like, as long as all the adults involved are all in, whatever floats your boat. But when it comes to me, like, if you want to play out any Moroccan houseboy fantasies, like, give a brother a heads up. And also understand that in my version of that fantasy, at the end, you're in chains, listening to me read passages from Aimé Césaire's Discourse on Colonialism. I know, hot. I'm a freak like that. As for cowboys, like, yeah, they still get me going, but tempered a little bit. Um, but if, you're, uh, if your fetish, if your thing is Michigan, I'm pretty certain. Fuck me, Michigan. No one wants to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. Time I get to find 
This is Risk. This is Rayland Baxter behind me now. And after Amy Salloway, we heard from another young Minnesotan. He was keeping in theme with the Jewishness of Amy's story. The young Mr. Robert Zimmerman dishing out the Havanagila blues. And then we heard from Javier Murillo, who has a wonderful podcast of his own called Wrong About Everything. (laughs) I love that name for a comedic podcast about politics. Now, for our last story today, We are going to head into darker territory. As we often do, we're closing with a heavier story. This story is about sexual violence. And I think it's important to point out that if you hear a story like this and it brings up memories or emotions in you that you're uncomfortable with, there are resources out there. There's the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, There are smart and compassionate people like our next storyteller, Nancy Donovan, who can help you take care of yourself. Nancy does speaking engagements and workshops all over the place. You can find her at nancydonovan.com. And here she is now with a story we call Call It a Crime. Angie asked me, do you want to call the police? And I said no. When Eddie dropped me off back at the dorm, Angie, my roommate, was still up. We sat at the end of our corridor and we had this old two-seater like bus seat that had been pulled out of a retired city bus at the end of the corridor facing out of this window, looking out in the darkness, and I told her what had happened because I was crying I think I was probably still bleeding and she asked me do you want to call the police there was not even a pause before that no I want you to understand that there was no reasoned consideration of pros and cons there was no it was just no and not just no but like no just one that said "Don't, don't be asking me that again I had been drinking that night, but it was planned drinking. I was a freshman theater major. I'd gone to an all-girls Catholic high school. I'd had a very sheltered childhood. I was so easily shocked. And I was such a rule follower. I was raised really Catholic and I had never been drunk because I wasn't legal drinking age. Like I tell you, Milwaukee at that point, I think like the legal drinking age was like three. Um, (laughs) But it was 19 in 1979 and I had just turned 19 and now I could legally do this. And because I'd never been drunk and I was an acting major, I knew that at some point I was going to be called upon to act drunk on stage And I needed to have the sense memory of what it felt like so that I could draw upon that so that I was going to be a really good actress. So I needed to go drinking. 
And Eddie volunteered to come along on my research trip. He was gonna, he was gonna be sort of like my watchdog, you know, make sure I, I got back to my dorm okay and maybe hold my head if I got sick. We didn't really know how I was gonna react to this. Um, I did like 11 different shots at the Ardmore bar because I wanted the sense memory of what each of those different alcohols tasted like. And Eddie drank a little bit, but not very much, because the whole idea was that, you know, he was, he, he was the one who needed to retain some capacity. So he suggests we go back to his fraternity house, because there the alcohol was free, and it was, it was starting to rack up that barbell. And I said yes to going back, because I didn't even give it a second thought. This was Eddie. Like, Eddie was one of my only real friends in the theater department. He was strictly Baptist, like I was strictly Catholic, and he was one of the few people that I could actually talk about religion with, and he, oh, he was such a like sandy-haired, all-American, southern boy. I'd never met anybody from the South. <laughs> it was like Virginia. It wasn't exactly the Deep South, but for me, it was like, you're southern? And he was my friend. So he and I would drive around at night talking about stuff. We'd be in a Chevy Impala. We'd do this loop from campus to the airport and back. And we would talk about family and life and, and theater and religion. And I had a crush on him. But he was like 23. And he just treated me totally like I was his, his kid sister. And this was Eddie who came along to be my watchdog. I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing white painter's pants, which I promise you were fashionable in 1979. Um, my favorite brown knit shirt. I had a heart-shaped agate choker. Uh, I remember back at the fraternity house, sitting up on the kitchen counter while Eddie was digging in a cabinet to get out more booze. And then he stood up and he came and stood between my legs and he kissed me. And I thought, yes, he doesn't think of me as a kid sister anymore. And then he said, let's go up to my room. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, like I'd been to boys' rooms before. And um, when I got into the room with him, there was this like, abrupt shift. Uh, and I remember standing by the dresser in this little, little tiny room, and, and suddenly he was taking my clothes off, like, we're going to take my clothes off. And, and it's not one smooth memory. It's, it's vivid, visceral snapshots. So, like, I remember being by the dresser, and he's trying to pull my shirt off, and I'm trying really hard to keep my shirt on, but 11 shots and no motor control. My arms are made of spaghetti, and I can't keep them on. And, and I tell you, like, when I said yes to go to the room, like, I thought we were going to talk, you know, maybe make out a little bit. Um, I would sober up, and he would walk me the three blocks home. Sex wasn't even remotely on my radar screen. Like, in my household, I'm sure you will not be shocked to know this, premarital sex. Well, we didn't even talk about sex in my household. And I 
was trying to figure out what I really thought about premarital sex for myself. I wanted to make that decision with my own brain instead of just my inherited beliefs from my parents. Uh, this was all hypothetical. Uh, no one was asking me to have premarital sex, but it was good for me, I thought, to have the decision made about my moral position before I was in a concrete situation where I needed to say something about it. Um, and the only person that I talked to about this was Eddie. On one or two of those car rides, he knew that I hadn't made a decision about it yet. That I didn't know what I thought about that. So now I'm fighting to keep my clothes on. <laughs> and all there is is panic, panic. Panic, and I start saying no, 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 and I'm trying to keep my clothes on. And then the next snapshot is I'm I'm in the bottom of the two bunk beds. I don't remember how he got my pants off, but he got my pants off, and I'm in the bottom of the bed, and he's on top of me, and I'm crying now. Um, oh my God! And then I see his penis. It was big, and it was hard, and it was a weapon, and I started screaming, no, still fighting. And he put his hand over my mouth. Uh, he hadn't even been looking at my face. His focus was on getting my clothes off. He put his hand over my mouth and he said, be quiet. You don't want anyone else to hear, do you? I didn't know whether that was a threat of humiliation or of added danger that if people heard they might join in. So I stopped screaming, but I was still sobbing and still struggling. And at the moment that um, he penetrated me, as he was trying to push inside, I suddenly said to him, tell me you love me even if you're lying. And he did say it. And oh boy, was he lying. And years later, when I first started doing my show, uh, my, I, my very first time of doing it was for the Minnesota Fringe Festival back in 2002. In that show, I talked about how this moment was the one that like, I felt so much shame around that I had asked him that. And I got this gorgeous email from somebody who'd been in the audience who said, no, 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 honey, don't feel shame about that. You were doing what you needed to do to survive that moment. This horrible thing was happening, and you were trying to transform that moment into something that you could actually live with. And now I think of it in terms of like I was drowning. And this piece of driftwood came by, and I grabbed that driftwood. And I did not stop to say, do I think that driftwood can hold my weight? Is there a possibility that there is a poisonous snake in that driftwood and I'm going to be even more trouble from it? No, I am fucking drowning and I grabbed the wood. Uh, and so I don't feel shame about saying that anymore, most of the time anyway. I, uh, I'm like, good for you, 19-year-old Nancy, for grabbing the wood and surviving. It was all over much faster than it just took me to tell it to you. And then he um, got up and started crawling into the top bunk. And I, I, I wanted him to take me home. 
like right then. And he said no. He, he had to sleep for a while first. And then I tried to get him to come down and be in the bottom bunk with me. Driftwood, driftwood. Um, that I was somehow trying to get my friend to comfort me or hold on to the lie of romance. But he just grumbled and stayed in the top bunk. And I finally gathered up my clothes and went in the bathroom to pee. And, um, and I was bleeding a lot. And all I had was white painter's pants. <laughs> and I tried putting a bunch of tissue in my, in my underwear, and that wasn't going to do it. And so I, I didn't put the pants on, and I went back in. And when he started waking up, he didn't sleep for very long. When he started waking up, I, I asked him if he could, you know, loan me something to wear that it would be okay, that blood would get on. And, and he said, uh, huh, I thought you girls, like, cared stuff for that. You know, like I'd suddenly gotten my period or something. And he finally loaned me this dark red pair of shorts. And, and part of what was so upsetting to me was that he'd always been so nice to me. And now there was like this irritated, grouchy, why are you asking me this stuff person. And where had my friend gone? And it never occurred to me that I could have walked the three blocks back to the dorm myself because... The plan was he would see me home, and it's not safe out at night on the streets for a girl alone. I had been raised to worry about stranger danger and not about officer friendly. Angie asked me, do you want to call the police? And I said, no. I was in the same theater department with him for almost two more years. And he still picked me up that next day to take me to the train station because that had been the plan. And if we changed it, then we would have to acknowledge that there was a reason to change the plan. And I remember getting into the passenger seat of his Chevy Impala and not being able to look at him and him saying, I know the first time can be unpleasant for some girls. That's unfortunate. I don't think we should ever talk about this. Talk about it? I don't want to talk about it. Like, if I talked about it, I... I I had no language for it, and, and if I did, then I'd have to start using like crime or victim or whatever in a sentence with me and my friend, and I just, I totally was on board with the don't talk about it. I was like, okay, let's pretend it never happened, but I was in the same department with him, a small department, and I had to come up with some way of surviving seeing him every single day and the piece of driftwood that I grabbed first was love your enemy even though I couldn't really acknowledge what he was my enemy for I, I tended to think of it as the forgiveness plan though I couldn't acknowledge what I needed to forgive him for um, no one has ever been forgiven with quite the vengeance that I was working to forgive him for something that I was not acknowledging had happened I, I'm not saying that this was rational in any way but Looking back on it, I think that maybe what was going on, that somehow I thought that if I was a better friend to him, if I was even more loyal, if I was even nicer, that it would somehow transform him into a person who retroactively couldn't possibly have done what he did. I lost the forgiveness plan and it became the pretend he doesn't exist plan. 
pretend he doesn't exist. Even if you're in class with him, even if you're out with friends and he's at the other end of the table, even if you're in a play with him and your character's sitting in a chair and his character standing behind you and is brushing his hand down your cheek in a tender gesture that is supposed to have a subtext of threat, even then, pretend he doesn't exist. And if it is too hard to pretend that he doesn't exist, pretend I don't exist. I got so good at pretending that I didn't exist. And part of the whole problem here was that I had no words for this. I tried to get them. I really did. I, I went to the counseling center, not to say, let me tell you about this bad thing that happened, but like, hey, I'm having all these health problems and I might flunk out of school because I don't seem to be able to go to class or do any of my homework. Um, and I did describe something and the counselor didn't have the name for it. I went to my doctor at one point and all he said to me was, when you go back to college, remember boys and alcohol don't mix. I tried telling this one friend of mine, I, I think they just thought that like I'd had a fight with somebody. I don't know what words I used. And then there was this guy, I have to say another piece of driftwood I had, like somehow because the choice about premarital sex had been taken away, I was really worried that I was damaged. So what I kept thinking was get back on the horse, get back on the horse, it, which is a really unfortunate piece of driftwood for this particular thing. Um, I made some not so great choices to try to prove to myself that I wasn't damaged. And one of those not great choices um, at some point when I told him about this horrible thing that had happened, he said, Nancy, that's, that's called rape. You were raped. And as soon as he said it, I knew he was right. I knew that was happened. But, you know, I still never considered calling the police. Why do you call your police on your friend? And even though I was pretending he didn't exist, the shift from this is my friend to this is someone who committed a crime against me. Once I finally had the word, I was trying to figure out who I could say that word to, and I told one of my brothers, and he changed the subject, like I didn't say it. Um, I told my mom, and my mom was like, Nancy, why were you drinking? I thought you were smarter than this. You went back to his house. Why did you go back to his house? And and it's only after I've spent a lot of time looking at my protective pieces of driftwood that I can understand that that's what my brother was doing, that's what my mom was doing, that they were trying to protect themselves. At one point, my scene partner, Joe, who tried to cover my eyes, beginning of junior year, was going to move into an apartment with Eddie. And like, Joe always threw the best parties, and we were going to have to do a lot of rehearsal for class. And I went to Joe, and I, I told him, you know, Eddie, Eddie rated me freshman year, and could you please not live with him? And Joe said, Nancy, it's a really great apartment, and we can't afford it without him. The best person I said the word to, I think, was Eddie. Right before he was going to graduate in the middle of my junior year, I, um, I, don't, I have no idea where this came from. Like, this, it's not, again, it wasn't a thought-out thing. I just said in Hadley, like, this is my last chance. And I went to the last party, Christmas party, and I pulled him out of the party, which totally surprised him, because I had been pretending he didn't exist for a fair amount of time, out onto the landing, left the door open, so, you know. And I told him that, you know, before you graduate, I want you to know that I know that you raped me. And he immediately started saying, we, we, we agreed we were never going to talk about this. And I said, mm, 
before you graduate, I just need you to know that I know that you raped me. And he said, no, that, Nancy, I know it might have been unpleasant, but it wasn't rape. And the thing is, like, I'm sure he didn't think it was rape. I'm sure that's not the story he had in his head for it. I didn't name it that. He didn't name it that either. And I said to him, oh, I didn't think that, like, you were going to suddenly have a V8 moment and hit your forehead and go, by gum, now that you say it, I did rape you. Like, I wasn't expecting that, Eddie. All I need is for you to know that I know that you raped me. And I just kept repeating it and repeating it, somehow with this magic calm, until he had nothing more to say. When I told some friends, like one of my best friends from grade school, and, well, goodness, she told me that she'd been raped when she was 16. And then, like, one of my friends from college when she was 11, and then one of my cousins, like my uncle. And I was like, oh, no, I always liked him, not him. And I couldn't believe that there were all these people in my life who I loved, who were living with this pain, and I didn't know it. But they didn't know until I told them. And even though it was hard for me to realize that I had survivors in my life, realizing that I had perpetrators in my life was even harder. It's not just a stranger in an alley with a knife. And most of the time, it's not a stranger in the alley with a knife. Now, I'm aware that if I had called the police that night, it's quite possible that I would right now be standing here telling you how much I wish I hadn't. Uh, I've heard stories about how really awful that experience can be of going through the criminal proceedings for all of it. But not reporting it was awful and traumatic. And maybe reporting it just would have been a different kind of awful and traumatic. And, And it's not like I want to report it because I think that anything would have happened to him. It's more that I want my 19-year-old self right away to have understood what had just been done to her. But what I can say is, what was done to you was wrong. And not bad sex wrong, or morning after regret wrong, or he said, she said, or he said, he said, or she said, she said, or they said, I said, or any of that kind of miscommunication wrong. It's not the, well, okay, it might be assault, but really, he's such a nice guy. Like, he, he couldn't possibly have done that. Or, or, okay, yes, this was not a good decision on his part, but you don't want to ruin his life for this one decision that he made. It, it's not that kind of wrong. It is pull out a gun and shoot you wrong. It is take a baseball bat and shatter your pelvis wrong. It is run you over with a car, back up and do it again wrong. There is a person responsible and it's not you. I don't say to people anymore when, when they tell me they're sorry, I never, say I'm, I never say, I'm sorry that happened to you, like it just happened. I always say, I'm sorry, that was done to you. 
I want to say, Angie, let's sit on that bus seat again and look out into the darkness together and ask me again, Nancy, do you want to call the police? Yes, I do. I would like to report a crime. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Peter Gabriel and Yusu Endor behind me now. And we, of course, just heard from Nancy Donovan. You can find her at nancydonovan.com. And remember, you can find the National Sexual Violence Resource Center at nsvrc.org. And when you want to find out where Risk is happening next live, just go to risk-show.com slash tour. On the 21st of August, we're in Philadelphia. On the 22nd of August, we're in Washington, D.C. On the 27th of August, we're in New York and Los Angeles. 
on the 22nd and 23rd of September, we're in Portland and we're taking pitches for those Portland shows. The themes are Bewildered and Furious. Then on September 24th and 25th, we're in Seattle. Again, the themes for those shows are Bewildered and Furious. We're taking pitches for those Seattle and Portland shows, so you can pitch me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. Don't forget, we have just released one of the most exciting things we've ever released in the time we've been doing thestorystudio.org, and that is our new video course called Intro to Storytelling, Wow Your Crowd. It's over three hours of video content, my giving lectures, you download worksheets to work with to workshop your own stories. There are stories that have been featured on Risk that are annotated and explained. You'll learn about the three essential ingredients of any story, the crucial differences between narrative summary and scenic details, how to use the six senses in your stories, and the five beats of classic story structure. But perhaps most importantly, the big so what? How to unpack the controlling idea of your story. Whether you've taken a storytelling workshop before or not, Intro to Storytelling Wow Your Crowd is so thorough, so practical, you can refer back to it whenever you want, Over three hours of video content there and all that supplementary material to download. It's really not to be missed. And it's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Goddamn right I'm biased, because I use stamps.com. Now, what the fuck are you thinking with your goddamn postage meters? 
Have you heard of Nordic Knots? The Scandinavian rug company that has become the insider brand gracing some of the most beautiful homes around the world? With rug designs by some of the world's leading designers and a signature collection of wool and jute rugs in modern colors? But Nordic Knots is not just about great design. Their mission is to make quality rugs that last, with no compromises. Goodweave certified, handmade pieces woven in all natural materials. At NordicKnots.com, it's easy to find a rug that's just right. A curated collection in lots of colors and sizes to choose from. Even custom sizes are possible. So, whether you're the type who loves the understated elegance of their luxury essentials or the bold statements from their top designer collaborations, you can't really go wrong. Oh, and don't tell anyone, but right now, you can get a free sample with the code INNERCIRCLE. NordicKnots.com.